Welcome to the Sus Talk Podcast. I'm Susumu Rocky, and today I'm joined by an amazing guest. He's one of the producers of the Zach Gelb Show on Monday and Tuesday from 6 to 10 p.m. Eastern on CBS Sports Radio. And you can also hear him produce on weekends for the network for such personalities as Ken Carmen and Andrew Filipponi. He also has his own show on the Wide World Sports Radio Network every Monday and Thursday morning. And I am joined by the man people call Trace. <laughs> Ryan Hickey. Ryan, thank you so much for joining the show. Sus, thanks so much for having me on. I really do appreciate it. That was, a, that was a hell of an intro. Not deserved, but thanks so much for having me on here. Really excited to talk with you. I am so happy to have you on. And I mainly wanted to bring you on to talk some college football, mostly focusing on the Big Ten. But there's two things I need to ask you before we go into any form of football talk. One, the nickname Trace, where does that come from? Because I have heard <laughs> Zach call you that on air. I've heard D-Ben call you that in the newsroom. And even all before that, when I started working over at CBS Sports Sports Radio, I remember hearing right, Bill Ryder calling you that too. Where does the nickname Trace come from? Well, that you just said it. It originated with the man himself, Bill Ryder. Um, I used to work on his show before I worked on Zach's. I worked on Bill's three days a week with the great Stu Kovacs. And my Twitter handle is Ryan underscore Hickey in the number three because I made it back in high school and that was like my football number. I was like, oh, you know, there's a million Ryan Hickeys in the world. I can't just do Ryan Hickey. So I had to put a, or I guess customize a little bit. So I went with three. And for whatever reason, Bill just found out the funniest thing. So like I started filling it on his show uh, before I was full time. And then he just started making jokes about the Twitter name uh, or the Twitter number, I guess, and just calling, you know, said the the uh the spanish version of the number three or pronunciation is trace and he started saying that more and more it stuck and because d-ben worked on the show Stu works on the show and zach listened to the show uh that is how the nickname trace came about and it is like you said for d-ben and uh zach it has stuck around even though bills move time slots it is uh is still sticking that's kind of amazing to me because I've always wondered, like, what is Trace? That feels so random to call, just randomly call somebody Trace. There has to be a backstory behind it, and I'm very glad to learn it. And it came from the minds of one Bill Ryder. I can't believe that. That was so good. I, I, I say it's great just to have Bill Ryder back back in the fold. It's just awesome to hear him on the on the uh, airways again. Oh, I love Bill. Absolutely. I'm so happy that he was back. It was very sad. That was like one of the first shows I've ever really worked on like as a full-time member. So it was sad to see him go, but I'm definitely glad he's back. And the, the trace of the nickname still lives on. So he, he is back and the nickname is back. The other question I wanted to ask you before we go into what we our main topic is, you've been hosting your own show for how long at least? Um, just over a year started off. Well, actually, I'm sorry. I started in the world of Twitter in, um, a year ago. I've been hosting my own show since real honestly, since the pandemic started in March. Yeah. I started seeing your streams pop up and I got to ask you, since you've been hosting solo for at least two hours, I got to ask you, do you, do you prefer hosting solo or do you, have you always wanted to try co-hosting? Um, that's actually really interesting because I like, I, once again, the radio for a long time, I always envisioned it with a co-host. And I think I, I do like hosting solo because I kind of like, you know, kind of controlling like what's talked about. It's like basically, I mean, obviously you talk about whatever I want to talk about. So that's obviously nice when, you know, I can basically manage or be in control. I, I could, I should say be in control of what's talked about. But at the same time, I'll say this, it does get boring. Like I do like going back and forth. So I like talking 
to someone about certain things because it is like some topics are tougher to kind of talk about or I should say it's better to have multiple opinions or multiple voices. Um, so I do find that's a big void. So I would say I definitely do prefer like having someone as a co-host. Um, but being solo has been fun for um, – was being fun for, uh, you know, these last few months here for sure. I'm just really – I'm glad to see it. I also love seeing the stream pop up every now and then whenever I'm going through Twitter, I always see your, the Ryan Hickey show stream pop up and it's just like, there we go. Got it. I got to listen to this. <laughs> and uh, thanks us. I appreciate it. You're the man. Anytime. So let's go into what we want, what I wanted to talk to you about, which is college football. You're a huge college football fan. And for me, I'm trying to slowly get myself back into the fold of this. Like madness that is college football and you know the big 10 being back and i just had i just immediately thought i gotta have ryan on the show because he's not only a huge college football fan but he's also a big 10 his expertise lies into the big 10 you would i would say and i wanted to ask you this like so there's a lot of things about college football that are extremely special and what makes the like college football so like so special compared to just watching the NFL because there's a lot of like different little things that that make college football different from the professional league but it just feels like what is keeping people from just watching the NFL Ooh, you know like to me it's it's like it's it's a combo of two things it's one it's like everything surrounding the game like it's like to me I'm a little more biased because, again, like you said, my, my like I, I watch both. I love both. But I definitely had to prefer one for college football. And part of it is, to me, one of the differences, one of the major differences is, like, the connection and passion that you have. Now, I'm not saying NFL fans are passionate. As, as you know, right? Like, especially living in New York, there are hundreds of thousands and millions of passionate Giants fans, Jets fans, anywhere in the country you go, any NFL city. There are passionate, passionate fans. What makes college football different is, like, when you have that connection with a university, with a team – it makes rooting for that team like all the more different. Like you're more invested. You feel a certain pride. Like for example, being a Penn State alum, I feel as corny as it sounds, like a pride factor that comes over me if they win a big game or they're talked about nationally or they're you know on, on a good run or playing a big game like they are this week. It's just there's just a pride factor because you go there because you know you're not on the team obviously, but it's the closest thing you'll have to kind of saying like a, a whole we thing. I'm not a big fan of when fans say we referring to the team. But college football, you could almost get away with it because there is like that connection that's again that you have that's just different from a professional team because there's no there's no bond other than you know whether it's your family's team or the city you grew up in like there, there's a certain bond with college football teams that's different than the professional level. So to me, the passion is more there. Like a Penn State loss will hurt way more um, than a Colts loss would, for example. Um, so I think that's one of it, the passion. And two, just the pageantry that surrounds it, like the atmosphere for a college game, like a, a Saturday to me is just so different. Um, you have the marching bands, you have the tailgating, you have the the home atmospheres that are that are truly, you know, actually have an impact on the game. The rivalries, it's just to me, and all that I guess goes kind of into the the first part with just having a different connection. And two, the di- like the level of play is sloppier. But with that said, I think that leads to better football from a viewing perspective because, like, the NFL is very clean, right? It's very buttoned up. It's very one of those things where, for the most part, the players are good at fundamentals. College football, you turn on any college football Saturday, no matter what year it is, no matter what week it is, 
you will see some mind-numbing plays. You will see some bad tackling, some bad decision-making, some bad coaching. And it's just like, how the hell could this person do that? But with that said, with those crazy plays, leads to insane outcomes. And leads, leads to crazy endings, leads to games between teams that shouldn't be even close, being coming down to the, coming down to the wire, leading some close games, um, having some nail-biting finishes. So to me, like, the passion is just different for college football because you have that connection, which is different. And then two, because there's just so, so much zaniness, so much craziness, like the rivalries just mean more. And with that, like teams that aren't good still play good teams, like really close in, in some games. Just There's so much of the unexpected that comes with college football that's different that you don't get in the NFL. That to me, those are the two reasons why I lean personally more towards college football than the NFL, despite loving both. I always found that, and we kind of discussed this a little bit when I was working over at 345 on Tuesday, back on the Tuesday, like, because there's kind of like this whole human element behind it, because at the end of the day, you're watching all these, like, they're kids, these football, like college football, in college football, you're watching kids play because they, they don't exactly have the fundamentals down yet. They're not exactly like completely polished yet. And that's, and you, and that's okay because I think it does add to that whole like unpredictability. It's like, you never know when, someone some of these players are going to mess up because they're bound to mess up like it's going to happen and it's, it's so rare to find like a college football player that's completely disciplined because if they are and if they are that disciplined that means they're almost ready to get to the NFL and the other part like the whole like pageantry the whole atmosphere i i personally enjoy that as well and just the whole like we factor like well i mean I know you don't like saying we, but and it's like, and you just said that it was pretty close, but like, because you could, you can't say that because in some ways that if you like, especially if you're someone who's in in school, like in at that university, and you're able to actually be in a class with some of these guys, like who knows, you you could be like in Ohio State, some student, and you could share a science class with Justin Fields or something, of. You know, it's it's kind of amazing. Like, do you have any like any particular stories back when you were in Penn State about <laughs> having like sharing a class with like a star quarterback or a star defensive player? Um, so not any class experiences for the most part. There were some like football players like lesser known or really not anywhere known that were just fine. I didn't really talk to any of them. Um, just kind of kept to themselves. Um, I did, I will say this, I did end up trying out for the Penn State team when I was there so as, a, as a walk-on. Um, this was my first year when Bill O'Brien was there, right when the sanctions were handed down. And I thought I had a chance because the scholarship limits that, you know, maybe they just need bodies. And they were doing, a, we were doing a wide receiver drill. I was the first person to go. No one else wanted to go. I, was, I thought, you know what, I'm going to step up here. I'm going to, you know, show the coaches what I got. I'll, I'll be the leader. They throw the pass to me, goes right through my hands, hits Bill O'Brien right in the foot. It's safe to say the tryout um, did not go as expected. I got my close encounter with Bill O'Brien, not in a way I figured I would. Um, so that is my only story I have when it comes to being around prominent big name players or coaches um, around Penn State in like a, a close setting per se. I mean, you were also – if. Around that time, like you were also around when uh, the Penn State volleyball team was was extremely dominant. Was that was that still the case, or was it? Oh yeah, they were they, they were one of the most popular teams. Them and wrestling were two of the most popular teams on campus because they were just so dominant. Yeah, that was right in the midst of their heyday when they were 
win national titles. Look at you, Sus, women's volleyball expert, huh? Yeah. Um, so I got to actually cover the the university um, volleyball team that when I was in back at Hofstra, which was. I have to tell you, it's one of the best experiences I've had just covering that team. And I got to learn a lot and learning about just the, the sport of volleyball was really awesome. And like I was and I always just remember it's like that Penn State team was always number one ranked. They're always undefeated. I was just thinking to myself, this team is potentially that's like that's like dynasty level dominance. I always and I always remember that it's either UConn women's basketball and then they always mention Penn State volleyball. They were as dominant as dominant could be. And they, yeah, that was like right in the midst of my heyday, 2013, 2014 uh, time. Yeah, right around the time that I graduated high school. I, I just remember that. But let's go. Let's shift back over to college football. I, I am. So I speak to you as a casual college football fan who I'm trying to. I was into it when I was younger. I was into college football right around the time when you had clutch plays such as the Vince Young run to win the national championship, Michael Crabtree's miraculous catch to win against Texas. I remember all those moments. And so like I would get up every Saturday morning to watch college game day. And, you know, now I'm just not as into it as I used to. And there's one culprit, one reason why Uh I am not, I was, I'm no longer that interested in college football. And it's because of one game. It's the kick six. And I've talked to you about this before, but I want to reiterate that the reason this game ruined college football for me was because there's nothing that's going to top this. There's no game, all everything. It had all the story, all the drama. It had top two, top five teams facing off against each other. And then one of the most miraculous finishes that we're probably never going to see again. We're never going to see like Nick Saban make that poor of a decision to just have like those random linemen all in there and then have and then opera just took advantage and just had say okay uh we just passed all these linemen and we're just gonna win the game just like that i, I just i just can't i i can't fathom just like thinking there's any game that could top this so with that being said it's since that since that game happened the college the college football system has changed. They have a playoff system now that's been going over five years running. And do you feel that college football has gotten better since they've implemented the playoff system and ditching the, the traditional BCS era, era format? So it's interesting. I agree I agree and disagree. I think, yes, I think overall it's gotten better. Like they need a playoff. The fact that college football is allowing computers to decide basically who is the best team, who's the second best team. And like, that's, that's it. Like we're relying on computers to have that information pumped out. I did not think it's a good system. Um, so the playoff by far, having people be able to use their eyes, be able to watch the games, having a committee, having multiple people, it's not just one person, having multiple people obviously decide, I think is a good, is a good factor for sure. Now is four a good number. Personally, I like eight. I think eight's a perfect number. I like to see it expanded a little bit. I think 16's too much. Um, I think eight, personally, would be a perfect number to include teams that deserve to be included to have a shot. Um, but overall, I think, you know, where we've come, starting with college football, basically the national champion getting uh, voted on by beat writers, right, where, you, you know, we had split national titles. I couldn't even imagine living in a time where you had two teams claiming a national title, just how, how that would go about. That would be just, it sounds insane, right? Nowadays where 
you had Michigan claiming a national title from like USA Today and the AP voted like Oklahoma national title. And imagine both of those universities, proud, you know, trying to celebrate a national title. So to have a, you know, then go to computers, obviously is a better step because you actually have a national title game played. So now we can actually have one game determine who the national channel uh, champion is. And then at least now you have people voting. So it's a hundred percent better than what it was. Again, I think it's close personally. I like eight teams is my kind of happy medium to where I think that's the perfect number to have a good enough sample size to get in the playoff. Um, but definitely hundred percent the playoff has made college football better um, in terms of determining a champion. I do like the, the, the number eight does sound great ringing in my ear. I, cause it just feels like there's not enough, like with just four and granted, like with four, that means like you get the four best teams, but sometimes like that four spots, usually the one that's always contested. And it just feels like there's more deserving teams that should have a shot. Like you look at the field, like right now you have teams like Notre Dame, you have a team like oh, this Oklahoma state team that's undefeated that should have a shot at, at the national championship, but they're basically just fighting off fighting for the last spot because you have three dominant like teams in Clemson, Ohio state and Alabama holding down the first three playoff spots. So I think I, I personally, I do agree with like, like expanding to at least eight because then you give like the other schools that definitely are worthy of a national championship a shot. Yeah, I, I and this is tough because to your point, like this year is not the year, and probably even last year wasn't the year either when it comes to like trying to argue for eight. Because to your point, it's Ohio State, it's uh, Clemson, and it's Alabama, and everyone else. Like that four spot, like you mentioned, the last few years has just been an avenue to get your doors blown off. Um, now, Oklahoma, I mean, Alabama did win a title out of the four seed a few years ago. Um, but yeah, this is the, that's the only issue with college football where it's trending right now is. You have three teams that are elite, 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 right? Like in their own category. And everyone else that's trying to get there, but not really there. Like Georgia has the talent, but they can never get the quarterback or the offense. Um, and no team has been able to touch Ohio State recently. No team's been able to touch Clemson recently. Um, the Big 12 has just been a mess. So I, th- that's the biggest criticism I've heard of going to eight is just then you allow teams that don't deserve to get in. And then you kind of water down the college football season. Cause that's also part of the pageantry is the college football season. It's only 12 games. Every game means so much to where, you know, a loss in September could end your season right there. I get it. But um, yeah, this is like you said, this is the year where it seems like there's three teams with Ohio state, Alabama, Clemson, and everybody else on a totally different playing field. Let's go. Let's go into talking about the Big Ten because they just returned last week after sitting out at least a month for a supposed postponed postponement due to the pandemic. Um, when you saw the way that they were handling how to go about the season during a pandemic, do you, did you feel that the Big Ten leaders handled the situation well? Be, given that there was a lot of controversy surrounding everything that was going on. I personally, I don't think they handled it well at all. Um, now that is separate, how they handle it and the decision they ultimately came to before reversing it to me is like two different things. Like I can't really argue with the signs that they were citing as to why they don't want to play college football this fall, they, why they didn't feel it was safe. So I'm not arguing with the science per se, but how they handled it in terms of coming about their decision. I, to me, I thought couldn't have been handled any worse. You know, the entire year, 
or I should say, excuse me, since March, or since the pandemic started, all of the major conferences, ACC, SEC, Big 10, Big 12, Pac-12, supposedly, and this is what they kept telling us, were talking all the time, talking weekly, talking daily, about how they should handle and how they should approach going about this upcoming college football season. They claimed to be united. They claimed to be on the, on the same um, playing field. Everyone, everyone knew what they were going to do. They were going to do something together. Then the Big Ten in July says, you know what? We're going to play conference-only games. Apparently, they told nobody else this. Um, and they were the first to announce that we're going to go to a conference-only schedule. And everyone else is kind of left hanging there like, what the hell are we going to do now? And then the Big Ten, so everyone else goes to the conference schedule. And then the Big Ten, right as practice is starting, because that's the thing you got to remember, too. Practices were underway. Like, Ohio State was playing a game, I think it was like 28 days or something like that. I forget the exact time amount. But they were getting ready for a game that was being played in less than a month. Teams were practicing. And all of a sudden, the Big Ten goes, ah, you know what? Like, we're not ready to do this. We're just going to cancel the season. Despite the fact that you see the ACC, the SEC, the Big 12, like, they had maybe not a plan, but they at least thought we're just going to wait it out and we're going to see what happens. We're not going to make any rash decisions. And to me, I thought the Big Ten tried to bully the other conferences to make the decision that they wanted them to make. And then when no one did it, right, the Pac-12 followed suit, but the three main with ACC, SEC, Big 12 obviously kept playing. And when they saw it was working and they saw that they had the testing in place and they had the ability to keep the players, for the most part, safe and the outbreaks under control, the Big Ten realized, oh, shoot, we messed up big time. Maybe we shouldn't have rushed the decision for no reason. Honestly, so that's another thing, too. There's no, there's no reason to make the call now in August. You know, like, like they could have kept pushing it and pushing and pushing, and that's the frustrating part because that's also what we heard. All the leaders kept saying, all we need, we need to buy more time. And how you buy more time is delay the season, delay the season, delay the season. The SEC delayed their season until late September, and they were just kind of playing it, and they were going to play until they, until they physically couldn't play. They were going to do that. I don't know why the Big Ten panicked and thought that they had to make this abrupt decision that wasn't going to go back at all. Um, and it was just extremely, extremely frustrating. Again, I'm not arguing the science, but I'm arguing the way they handled it. I thought they went about it terribly because it felt like, to me, that decision came out of nowhere. It was, we're going to play, we're going to play, we're going to play. All of a sudden, one day you wake up and it's the Big Ten's not going to play. It's like, well, where did, where did we go? How, how did that happen? So that was my biggest frustration. I think they handled it as, as poor as you could have handled it, to be honest, as a conference. I thought they did that. It's kind of interesting that I, I can't, I feel like we both of us, like we kind of figured that the SEC was going to try to have a season regardless that they were going to try. Like imagine no SEC football, just imagine that you can't. And there's no way that anybody is in the, in those universities, in those college towns, like there's no way that they can even fathom the idea of not having a football game on Saturday. So the SEC was pretty much like, okay, we kind of have to have a season. We have to figure out a way to try. And the ACC and the Big 12 kind of fell into this, almost in a same boat, but not as intense as it would have been for the SEC. Did you feel like the if the Big 10 kept to their promise on the postponement, do you feel like that they they would have tried to wait. They would have definitely committed and waited it out. I, I, I thought, I mean, that, and that's another thing too. Like when you see the other conferences playing, I think also the big 10 realized, well, a, a fall or a late fall, an early spring, a, a late winter season was not going to be realistic. Cause then you're only playing, you know, basically yourselves and no one else is playing. And so, yeah, I think the SEC didn't flinch. They said, you know what, you, you can do your own thing. We're going to do our own. Like you said, you can't envision college football without the SEC. 
And then eventually the Big Ten wanted the SEC to bow to them. Essentially, the Big Ten bowed to the SEC later on in the SEC, got what they wanted, you know? Yeah. And kind of just one – this is for me. And this before we kind of go into at least the first week of the season and going into kind of like a, a picture of what, what is to come for the Big Ten. For me, like there was always – the SEC has always been the powerhouse conference – but then, like, the Big Ten to me was, like, the second most famous conference that you wanted to watch college football for. So tell me as someone who has seen years upon years of countless battles in the Big Ten, what makes this conference so special? What is stopping me, the casual football college football fan, from just simply watching a Clemson undefeated season or watching SEC games, just those two? And what's stopping me from going into watching the Big Ten? Big Ten football. Um, I would say it is different. Like it, it the SEC. The, the, I guess this is the weird part of the SEC is like, obviously we know they have the depth of teams they have is better than any conference, and the top is better. Like they have Georgia, they have Alabama, they have Florida, they have LSU. Um, consistently, those programs are, are consistently better than let's say Ohio State, Penn State, Wisconsin, Michigan. But the SEC is kind of weird in the fact that you have teams like Arkansas, you have teams like Vanderbilt, and even some of the middle-tier teams like Auburn and South Carolina. They take massive pride, for whatever reason, in like Alabama's accomplishments, thinking that like that means they're good. I never quite understood that, to be honest, where it's like the SEC always like you know wants the SEC conference to do well. Whereas I feel like when you watch the Big Ten, it's – it feels like football one because of the weather, right? I and mean, you know, a lot of these are Midwestern um, schools, so you got like that chilly fall feel to them. So it kind of gives you that vibe. And not to mention, like there's there's no love lost. Like there are I'm not saying there's no real rivalries. There's a lot of hate in the SEC. Don't get me wrong, but it's like no one, no Big Ten fan base roots for other schools to do well, so it looks good for the Big Ten. Like as a Penn State fan, I hate Michigan. I hate Ohio State. Like, I can never, if I have to, or I can avoid it, excuse me, I will never find myself rooting for Michigan ever. I never find myself rooting for Ohio State ever. I root for Wisconsin to lose. Like, I, I think there's, that's the difference where there is like a, a, a true bond because at the same time, obviously, it's like, you know, you're in the same conference, but at the same time, like, you hate each other. Like, you don't really want to see anyone else do well. And sure, nationally, like, obviously, that doesn't work out. Like, you see the Pac 12, everyone beats each other and, then the Pac-12 doesn't get much respect. But I think you have story programs. You know, Ohio State has a ton of history. Um, Michigan has a ton of history. Penn State has a ton of history. Um, Wisconsin has a ton of history. So I think you have a lot of those big-time schools with storied pasts that, um, that, that do, you know, you're used to hearing a lot of those names in the old school. So you have a lot of legacy programs. And it's, it is different in the fact that SEC, you know, always says it, it just means more, but the, the Big Ten doesn't root for each other to do well, which I think does help because it helps, you know, it just makes it more fun when teams like Michigan lose year after year after year to teams they shouldn't lose to. Or Ohio State gets upset by Iowa one year or Purdue another year. Just, it is different in that aspect, I'll say. So that's why I think, I mean, I personally like the Big Ten, obviously being, again, being biased, being from the Northeast. So that's obviously close to our footprint. It's going to Penn State. Um, but yeah, I think the, the Big Ten's well run. I think there's a strong following nationally. And I think it's just you love your team. Um, there's a lot of love there. And you want to see your hated rivals do well. Uh, do bad. Excuse me. Do bad. Not do well. Do bad. 
I, I do see that. It, it does feel as though when I'm watching the SEC, it is more just to protect the SEC brand. Like, they're always focused on making sure the conference is first above all. And when I watch the Big Ten, like, it just feels – it does feel like there's a lot more hatred in the rivalries. It's a lot more intense. Like, the only other feud that I could honestly tell you in the SEC still matters to me is – the Iron Bowl the and the Egg Bowl, that's pretty much the those two always have constant hatred. But then there's at least like four S like Big Ten rivalries you could think of that have this intense hatred and they keep like hold of this like feuding and anger every every year it seems. Like you have Ohio State, Michigan, you have Penn State, Michigan State, and you also have uh Minnesota and Wisconsin, I believe. Is that I forget the trophy, the name of the battle that they call those the the rivalries, which I love hearing. Oh, is it uh, is that Paul Bunyan's axe? I Paul think? Bunyan's axe. I love that. I love that's another thing too. Yeah, there's a lot of great trophies in the Big Ten. There is. You have Paul Bunyan. You have um, you have Paul Bunyan's axe. You have the little brown jug. You have uh, the Michigan Michigan State. When I, I forget, I apologize. the The name of their trophy. They have a, like a lumberjack. There's a ton of great trophies out there. There's a pig. There's a pig one. There's the iron skillet. There's there's a ton. Yeah, I'm always what was the one? I think pretty sure the Penn Penn State and Michigan State fight over a megaphone, I believe. Or am I thinking uh, of they, um, some another tool? That's the Notre Dame rivalry. Penn State and Michigan State have a memorable trophy, the Land Grant Trophy, and that thing weighs a ton. It is one of the ugliest trophy sus you'll ever see. How ugly like, are we talking? It's so ugly that the loser of that game should have it instead of the winner. Like, that's how bad it is. It is just a massive block of wood. The thing is like three three stacks. It's like three feet high. It looks like it weighs a million pounds. You can't just like – like that's not one of those trophies where everyone runs to the sideline like lift up and say like we won the land grant trophy. That's one of those things where like you leave it on the sideline after the game and say, you know what, you're the loser. You pick this up. Bring it next year like just so you can keep it again sort of thing. Wow! Wow! I can't believe it—a tro- a elite, a trophy that you should give to little loser. And I don't know why we don't see that. I agree. Uh, that, that's we should we should suss, that's what we should do. Start a rivalry where the loser gets something um, brutal. You have to lift a ton of something that looks grotesque. I like the idea, and I apologize for getting the, the trophies mixed up because I don't. I did always remember the megaphone and I always associated with Michigan state, but I just, sometimes I completely forget like uh, which school feuds with which. Cause there are, that's the beauty of it. There's a lot of rivalries and they have different reasons to be fighting and different reasons to be competing against each other. Right. Uh, so I mess. I saw So it's Paul Bunyan's ax from Minnesota, Wisconsin. It's also the Paul Bunyan trophy. So look at that. You get the Paul Bunyan ax from Minnesota and Wisconsin. You get the Paul Bunyan trophy from Michigan, Michigan state this weekend. So that is, you know, what other conference has basically two rivalries with the same sort of um, uh, trophy mascot in it? Can't can't make it up. Can't beat it. I I'm I'm pretty giddy about just like that the matchup already. So what I let's go into the like the Big Ten and the big guy in this in this conference conference is Ohio State, and they've been this way for a very long time. At, and ever since the playoff system started, I felt like Ohio State's always a shoe in to make it in. It's always Ohio State that's in there, almost always. And it's been that way since Urban Meyer was there. And now with Ryan Day, he has somehow continued this dominance. So when you look at Ryan Day, what is it about him that has 
helped Ohio State just maintain this consistent dominance over this conference. So it's interesting. Well, Ryan, I mean, again, he's only year two, right? Like, there's still a lot to go. And, and now he's starting to bring his own guys in recruiting-wise. Right? I mean, last year, obviously, it was all Urban Myers players. What's interesting Ryan Day so far is that he's been able to do something Urban Meyer has not been able to do in his tenure at Ohio State, and that is get elite quarterback play. Like, I mean, again, it's very impressive that Urban Meyer won a national title with a third-string quarterback in Cardell Jones. Like, that is one of the hardest things to do. Maybe we'll never see that again when you win a title – um, not only, you know, with a third-string quarterback, but with a third-string quarterback actually is the reason why you win the games. Like, that that was crazy. Um, but with Ryan Day, I mean, he gets Justin Fields. He helps to recruit Justin Fields to Ohio State. He has a strong recruiting class now, and it's he trend. The reason why Ohio State is so elite these last two years and so untouchable is just because for years and years and years, I don't remember, they had great special teams, a solid defense, great, you know, running backs, receivers, they never had a quarterback that could truly just when all things are equal, beat you and be the reason why they win. Like JT Barrett, it was a good quarterback. He's a good college quarterback. Um, but he had his moments, especially later on in his career where he struggled. He couldn't elevate his team. Um, and in the playoff we saw against Clemson, obviously that reared its ugly head. Um, whether it was Dwayne Haskins um, was okay for a year, but again, the Ohio State was kind of sloppy. And even then, when, when Joanna Haskins was playing well, the defense never was on the same page. But now, when you help, when you're Ryan Day and you help get Justin Fields to Ohio State, you see just the difference maker he truly is. He's taken this program, which already was leaps and bounds above everyone else in the Big Ten, to even another level, take him into that stratosphere of Clemson, take him into that stratosphere of Alabama. And I think that's going to continue, unfortunately. This is not one of those things where it's like, oh, you got a stud quarterback. Justin Fields is there, but the one he leaves is a massive drop-off. We'll see you know, how Ohio State will recruit and bring in more quarterbacks. But that's really the one thing Urban can never really do was get that elite NFL first-round draft pick sort of – I guess Dwayne Haskins was first-round draft pick. But there's not that, that hype. There's not that confidence that you see with Justin Fields and him being a, a legitimate pro that you had with Dwayne Haskins. So – the quarterback play, he's been able to take that to the next level. And we see so far, that's what he's been able to not only take over Urban Meyer's team, but this year and last year, these two teams already look more, you know, bulletproof, if you will, or look even better than they did um, really uh, most of Urban Meyer's tenure just because of the quarterback. And as you see, Urban Meyer had one of the best tenures that Ohio State will ever see. So the rich keep getting richer, and that's what uh, Ryan Day's doing at the quarterback position. I do – what I love, I love seeing Justin Fields, and I think that if there's someone you have to say, like, this is someone who is rival, who is competing with Trevor Lawrence for at least the first. He's the only person right now that I can honestly look at and say that's someone who could potentially be an alternative for the first overall pick in the upcoming draft class because he's just that damn good, and. I think we we got a chance to see a showcase of their talents last year, or was it was it a year ago that that, that they faced? Yeah, it was. It was. The yeah, whole, last year. So we got a chance to see what those two could do against each other, and it was great to see. And, and I believe that was one of the more entertaining college football games we're going to see in a while. I believe. Oh, t- oh my sauce! That that game last year between Ohio State, and Cl- I, I totally agree. As a, again, as a fan of a dog, you know, I didn't have a dog in the fight. I rewatched that game twice maybe three times like i after the game my heart was racing because that was just one of the most back and forth 
well-played, insane college football games with so much on the line that we'll ever see. That yeah, that was that was incredible. Like you said, Justin Fields went toe to toe with Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, it's kind of makes me think that everyone's going for Trevor Lawrence, but you never know. You never know with college football. You never know what's going to happen. And one thing could happen where Justin Fields could just easily just break in and be the new the new number one overall pick or this new generational talent kind of guy because Trevor has that title of being like the next great NFL quarterback prospect, but. Fields could just easily come in and just take that spot if everything breaks right for him. I totally trust. I am 100% with you. And that's the thing, too. Like, you know, obviously now we're starting to hear more about the draft. Oh, who's going to get the number one overall pick? Should the Jets tank? Like, what happens if they don't get the number one overall pick? Should they keep Donald? Like, I'm with you. Whoever gets Justin Fields, whether it's the first overall pick, second, third, whoever, wherever he lands, I'm telling you that. I think Justin Fields is going to be a great, great NFL quarterback. Not that people are sleeping on him because we know that. But to your point, it's Trevor Lawrence, Trevor Lawrence, Trevor Lawrence when it comes to number one overall. Let's not sleep on him. Let's not forget about Justin Fields. This guy is a very talented quarterback. And I'm with you. I think he can make a great impact on the league. He has great footwork. He has great legs. He reminds me a lot of Deshaun Watson. They have very similar characteristics, making plays to their feet, um, but having a great arm. I'm with you. I think Justin Fields, wherever he ends up, is going to be great. Let's go into their – Ohio State's biggest rival, Michigan. And I love watching Michigan from afar. If there's one thing that's kind of kept me a tether to college football, it's Michigan. And just watching whether they're actually going to do something. Whether something is going to happen or something is going to break right for this this team, I mean. And since Jim Harbaugh has taken over his alma mater, it kind of just feels like every single year that they've always underachieved in the most brutal fashion possible. And do you feel like after this year, if Michigan doesn't get it done this year, do you feel like Jim Harbaugh is on his last legs here? So that's really interesting, Sus. I think he could be on his last legs. Like, if he was to leave, I think it would be Jim Harbaugh leaving, not Michigan firing him. I said this after last year's game, and I, I totally believe this, and I'll say it again when they get smoked again this year. To me, Michigan struggles, especially with Jim Harbaugh, um, against Ohio State, it's not a Jim Harbaugh problem. It's a Michigan problem. Like you, we hear year after year, we heard it last year, Justin Fields, right? A guy brand new to this rivalry who came from Georgia. It was his first year at Ohio State. After the game, when they went to the big house and smoked Michigan again, he said, it just means more to Ohio State. We take this game more seriously. Ohio State dedicates more resources to football. They are more invested in the outcome of football success. It's not a knock on Michigan, what I'm about to say here, because they, they are one of the best, if not the best, public university uh, in the country. And there's nothing wrong with priding academics over athletics. Michigan, to me, their priorities are with academics, which is, again, that is totally fine. But they invest the resources, they invest the time into athletics. And, and with that said, they also have a high standard when it comes to admitting players to come to Michigan. It's sort of like a Notre Dame where – you know, you not only have to be a great football player, you also have to be great in the classroom. You have to want to learn. You have to want to be a great student. And this is not a knock on college athletes, or this is not saying that some schools are dumber than others. But when you're in high school, when you're really, really, really good, right, and you have a chance to go to the NFL, you're locked in on the NFL. You can always go back to school. Football, for the most part, is a priority. And not to mention, too, college football, despite the fact they don't get paid, is a full-time job. Like, you are a professional with the amount of practice time, film watching, studying, working out, like that is a, you know, 40, 60 hour job. And that's not even including the game. 
So then on top of that, to have like a challenging, rigorous academic schedule, it's a lot. So there's, a, you know, it's understandable that players, if you have a chance to go to Ohio State, where maybe they'll help you a little bit more, maybe it's a little less challenging than it is, Ohio, than it is Michigan, like you're going to go to Ohio State. So I don't think it's a, a Jim Harbaugh problem just because the talent gap, as we've seen, is growing between Ohio State and Michigan. And I just think Michigan, from the very top, starting with their president on down, their focus is more on academics than it is on, than it is on athletics, which, again, goes back to when Justin Fields says Ohio State takes the game more seriously than Michigan. Like, Ohio State works 24-7, 365 to beat Michigan, to not lose to them. Whereas Michigan, as we've seen, you know, they have other interests. It's not the worst thing in the world to be, in, in, you know, invested in other things, but that's what they are. And maybe they care about the Ohio State game that week or the week leading up to it or maybe just in the fall. But it takes, you know, a full year-round effort to get ready for that game. Ohio State takes it seriously. Michigan doesn't take it as seriously. And the last thing I'll say, especially since the last few years, Michigan has been the better team in a few of these games heading into there, right? They've had better players for the most part. Some years, Ohio State's defense is really down. Ohio State's struggling offensively to consistently just outscore opponents. Um, and Michigan has had the momentum. They were just – they were Michigan two years ago, in 2018, was – in the horseshoe to win the game going into it. And they got, they didn't just lose. They, they lost by almost 30 points. I think there is a mental block for Michigan and Jim Harbaugh that starts with Harbaugh and trickles down to the team where they have seen, and they have come close and then they have had years where they should have beat Ohio state, but they kind of have it in the back of their mind. Like, you know, this, we can't lose this game where there's putting too much pressure on themselves, whether it's getting intimidated before the game even starts to Ohio state plays confident. They play motivated. And that has been the difference. So I think it has to do with, you know, the academic standards. I think it has to do with the seriousness, the rivalry from Michigan perspective. And I also think it has to do with, I think there is some sort of intimidation factor because Ohio State's had so much success. They're in Michigan's head to Michigan almost psychs themselves out um, when it comes to game time. Is there anyone do you feel that within the rest of the Big Ten that could even stop Ohio State? Because to me, it's Ohio State's conference to lose but you start to see these teams like Wisconsin. You're starting to see like Indiana. I'm sorry. I have to say this, but Indiana has kind of, kind of showed up a little bit. You know, is there any team in the big 10 that could possibly challenge Ohio state at all? I mean, this year I'm going to say no on a year to year basis. I mean, not to be a Homer, but Penn state consistently since James Franklin's got there, has been the one team that has constantly pushed and challenged Ohio State. You know, Penn State has built their defense on speed to match Ohio State's offense. They've slowed them down. And they've, again, consistently, you know, I think that I just actually looked at it today. The margin of victory in the Ohio State-Penn State series since Franklin's got there is 8.9 points. So just about a touchdown, right? A little more than a touchdown. The margin of victory for Ohio State and Michigan since Jim Harbaugh's got there is 19-plus points. Mm -hmm. It's almost three touchdowns. So, yeah, Wisconsin has met them in the, uh, you know, in the Big Ten, obviously, uh, championship a few years. To me, as a, this year, the answer is nobody. In most years, consistently, I still think the answer is Penn State because they're the ones recruiting on – not they're actually just on the same level. Excuse me. They're recruiting closest to Ohio State's level – they're not intimidated. They are, their team is built to beat Ohio State. Well, that's another thing. Michigan, Michigan's defense is not built to slow down 
of Ohio State. It's not built for speed. And that's why they've gotten burned the last few years. Ohio State does not cater their team to beat Ohio State. Penn State does. And that's why I think most years the biggest or the closest team to Ohio State, the one that gives them the run for their money the most, is Penn State. I think that's the team that if there were to be a takeover, per se, in the Big Ten, where it's not Ohio State's conference year in and year, I do think, Homer or not, you, you can say what you want, but I think it still is Penn State. Kind of adds to this whole thing, and the reason I I put in like the apology earlier when I mentioned Indiana was because <laughs> it's like I kind of saw it, and when I meant what you mentioned earlier is that it, it just you know one sees like one loss could end the season because you're talking about Penn State because they're a, they're a team that could easily like compete against this Goliath in Ohio State, but then they you suffer this like one brutal loss, and it just feels like your whole season is just over. Just like that, but you know, I I think I was partially. I just remember scrolling through Twitter on that last Saturday. I was like, oh my god, everyone's talking about this Penn State game, and it's like I don't, I can't imagine what happened because this was almost <laughs> the same. This was also, by the way, this was the same weekend when there was a quadruple doink uh, of a field goal in Rice. I be, I believe it was Rice University. Uh, yes, the, the quadruple doink, and it kind of, and I. You know what? After this podcast, I, I can honestly say that I'm going to start watching so much more college football after this because I've missed out. I really have, and I and I'm, I have. I, there's only I can't be sorry for anybody at all for this. It's my my own fault, and I'm very glad that you basically have convinced me I need to watch more college football. Sus, I think your Saturdays will you'll be a lot more enjoyable, a lot more exciting, craziness. There's just Again, bias, but there's just so much greatness that goes on on Saturdays that I'm not sure, you know, what else there is to do, especially now, you know, especially when there's not much to do on a Saturday. But I promise you this, Sus, if you if you dive into college football, if you get into it, if you're sitting there every Saturday going forward now watching these games, I can promise you, you won't be disappointed. Kind of go into like a bigger picture because I've I've honestly I've the one team I have kept kept track of is is Notre Dame. Um, I can, mm-hmm. so for me, Notre Dame is interesting because they have a, a gigantic game coming up against Clemson, which is in a week and they still have another opponent left to left to take on before the big game. I feel like, cause that's the big game of the year, potentially, would you say? Yes. I, yes. Rankings wise so far, um, the biggest test for Clemson for sure, I would agree. It because when I when I listen and when I watch this Notre Dame team, this the one thing that I kind of have this feeling of. This is a team that has discipline. This is a team that I feel is balanced, and whether they have they're even at the talent level of Clemson, that's a whole like I know that's like one issue that stops them from giving Clemson an actual fight. But to me, like. The balance and the discipline of this team, I feel like, could play a key part in if they have in any shot that they have being Clemson. Yeah, and like they, you know, they've they're veteran led. You know, Ian Book's there for this is his third year as a starter, um, which is massive. Like you need that veteran leadership because you can't beat yourself. Like that's the thing. Like when you have such a great and well coached team as Dallas Sweeney as Clemson, they don't beat themselves. Right? Rarely do you see if if Clemson loses a game. Whether it was LSU last year, they had a close game against Ohio State um, in the in the in the playoff. They've lost a few games in the ACC kind of earlier before they really kind of came to the point they're at now. They don't beat themselves. So if you make mistakes, if you give them turnovers, if you commit penalties, 
they're going to take advantage of that. They're going to run away. So like you said, the talent gap, that's part of the reason why Clemson is, is so dominant. You need everything to go right and maybe then some if you're an ACC team that wants to be Clemson. So if you're a Notre Dame going to this game next week, you got to be on your P's and Q's. You can't commit penalties. You can't turn the ball over. And you can't beat yourself. If, if the ball, you know, if the deep ball is there, you got to catch it. You know, you, you got to make the play. You got to make the tackle if it's just you um, on a one-on-one, you know, trying to make uh, tackle a Clemson uh, offensive player. You just – you can't beat yourself. You can't make the small mistakes because Clemson's too good where they'll just beat you anyway. But you have no shot if you are beating yourself as well. So I'm with you. I think Notre Dame, like I said, has that veteran um, experience. They have a good coach with Brian Kelly. I think we'll have them ready to play for sure. What is one way to really slow down this Clemson team? Because if, to me, the, the one key for Notre Dame is as not only Ian Book, but I feel like the running back Williams, who I I love, I love Williams. He was he's just like every game he always at least gets like one touchdown. He's always making like one meaning at least a handful of meaningful run to get at least a couple of notch a couple of first downs, and. I feel like if there's one way, if, is there any way like teams have start, started to figure out how to stop Penn, I mean, stop Clemson. I think the, I mean, this is, this is what I'm about to say is obviously not easy. It's extremely tough. I think for me this year, specifically the best shot a team has at beating Clemson is slowing down or trying your best to take away their running back, Travis Etienne. Because this is not an indictment of Trevor Lawrence at all, right? Because obviously, if you take away the running game, that means you want the quarterback to throw the ball more. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is that Travis Etienne is so deadly, not just in, in the running game, but in the passing game on screens, that he just slices and dices. If you give him a lane, he'll take it. And he'll turn, you know, a five-yard dump off into a 70-yard touchdown in the blink of an eye. But if you slow down the running game enough, Clemson lost T. Higgins to the draft last year. Unfortunately, they lost their best receiver and better than T. Higgins. And Justin Ross had a, a had a neck injury and is so far, at least we believe, unable to play this year. Um, and so they lost their two best receivers, and they have an unproven, or I should say, younger group of receivers outside of one of the slot guys, Amari Rogers. So at least if you got to put the ball in the inexperienced hands, right? If you got to rely on the Clemson receivers to beat you, make plays. And to me, that's the best shot. Um, of a team upending Clemson. Take away Travis Etienne. Don't let him run the ball. Don't let him beat you in the pass game. Do whatever you got to do. And understand that's why they're so deadly if Trevor Lawrence is on the ball all over the place. But you got to just hope and pray that these receivers can't make plays to beat you. Because uh, otherwise, if Etienne's rolling, that entire offense is rolling, and you're playing catch-up. And anytime you're playing catch-up, that, that Brent Venables defense has their ears pinned back, they can get after the quarterback, and you are in massive trouble. I'm glad I got... I'm glad to have been able to speak speak with you about everything that comes with the Big Ten, everything that comes with college football, and I'll have like a little Clemson in there too, because sometimes it's it's a nice refresher for me because I'm it's a reminder about how dominant this team has been for the past couple of years. And before I let you go, Ryan, I want to ask you this because this is you you are a diehard Mets fan. <laughs> and I need to ask you about this, and I'm going to start doing this every single time I have a noted Mets fan as a guest. The Steve Cohen sale is imminent, fingers crossed, but how are you feeling about this? How are you feeling about this end of the Wilpon, uh, potential end of the Wilpon era? I'll say this. I will feel a hell of a lot better, Sus, when it's official. 
This, uh, if this goes through, the owner's vote, as we're talking, it will be on Friday. And if Bill de Blasio does not get in the way, if somehow this goes through, because I'm holding my breath and I'm not trying to get excited because we've already seen this deal fall through once, right? I want to see it fall through again. If this goes through, the owner's approved, de Blasio says, okay, you can take over the lease for City Field. And Steve Cohen is the true owner of the Mets, no holds bar, no hand uh, tied behind his back. No hyperbole, sus. This will be the greatest day in my Mets fandom. They went to a World Series in 2015. 2006, growing up being, what was I, 11 or 12? Like, that was one of, like, my favorite seasons, maybe the favorite season I ever had as a Mets fan because that team was just so special. Despite falling short, despite Carlos Beltran, you know, the hanging curveball strike three. Uh, we'll get to that <laughs> another time. But this will be the first time in my 26 years on this earth where I will actually feel confident that the Mets have a chance to win. They don't need a miracle to happen. They don't need teams to collapse. They don't need a million, you know, question marks to go right in order for them to have success or need a Daniel Murphy to be unconscious in the playoffs and hit home runs in seven straight games to get to the World Series. They will have a competent owner that wants to win. That's the thing that, like, the, the Wilpons say they wanted to win, but they never acted like they wanted to win. This is a guy, Steve Cohn, who apparently is going to come in here, spend some money, not just spend money for agents, spend money on analytics, spend money on scouting, to be like the Dodgers, right? Be like the Rays. The, the Rays and the Dodgers, are, Dodgers especially, I guess are a better example, are, didn't win the World Series because they bought their way to the World Series. Now, obviously, Mookie Betts helps. But a lot of those guys, Cody Bellinger, Max Muncy, Corey Seager, and a lot of their core guys are guys that they acquired off the scrap heap or they guys that they drafted um, and developed. And that is what I'm hoping the Mets, led by Steve Cohen, will do, invest money into developing players, investing money into scouting players and seeing, you know what, this is a guy who didn't work out here. We could take him in here. He can do this well. We'll turn him into a really good player. There are plenty of guys in the Dodgers where you look at them, you know, they turn their careers around because the Dodgers helped put them in positions to succeed. I am hoping the Mets will be like that. It will be the greatest day of my life, and the Wilpons are officially not the owners of the Mets anymore. And, again, I'm just at this point I'm holding my breath because if anything goes wrong, Honestly, like sus, this obviously there's serious things going on, but in sports terms, this would be one of the worst days of my life. No joke. If this deal falls through, if Steve Cohen cannot be the owner, um, it will be legitimately one of the worst days of my sports fandom. Do you worry or are you concerned at all that it's just like for me when I watch, I've seen this like, like every now and then you see like a new owner pop in. Do you are you concerned at all that? It's going to be bumpy. Or are you like fully expecting that the first couple of years are going to be a little bumpy because he is a new owner. He is, he just bought the team and not, not everyone goes into this knowing exactly what to do. There's going to be mistakes. Like this is why I've, I'm a firm believer in a new owner syndrome. I believe in, I believe in it. It's all actions. It gets a little, very crazy around the first couple of years. Someone it just buys a team. Like, are you ready for this? Are you ready to just go through a whole like insanity of like potentially with Steve Cohen? So this is what gets me excited, Sus, because I think he'll. From what we've seen so far, and what he said apparently is that like what I like the most is that he's going to be a guy. It sounds like he's going to hire people to do the job and let them do it. It sounds very simple, I know. It sounds very obvious, I know. But how many times, how many sports owners do you look at and truly say they're letting the people they hire do their jobs? There's not many. There's always people interfering. There's 
always owners that think they know best or want to be involved in the decision making instead of letting the people they hire do their jobs. The Wilpons were known for years and years and years to meddle, whether it was spending money, whether it was wanting a say in the manager, whether it was wanting a say in who's going to get hired or who should be signed. They always had their hands in it and it was always for the wrong reasons. It sounds like Steve Cohen's a guy, as a Mets fan, mind you, he is a, a, you know, a Mets fan, lifelong Mets fan, which makes me even more excited that this is a guy who's going to lead them to the promised land. Maybe not right away. I'm not expecting World Series next year, per se. But I think he could be a guy lead them to the World Series um, and be sustainable, you know, have some sustainable success. Um, because I think he's going to be a guy who realizes why, you know, he ran a successful investment company in part because he hired people to do the jobs that they hired him for. If you can, if you can hire and identify good managers and leaders, and then let them decide the personnel, let them decide who to who to manage, let them decide who to lead, it works. So that's why I'm feeling good, Sus. I think, like I said, my biggest concern is just letting him get the team. As soon as that's official, as soon as there's no more red tape, as soon as there's no more owners' votes, there's no more De Blasio trying to you know trying to get A Rod to own the team. The day that Steve Cohen officially can walk into City Field, officially can say, I am the owner of the New York Mets. I think that will be one of the most successful days in the franchise and it will only go forward from there. You can't wait to go on that spending spree, getting guys like Rio Muto, getting Lindor, getting uh, Trevor Bauer onto the squad. Like, you're like, that's honestly like the first time like I'll ever see like Mets fans get really giddy about free agency since probably 2006. Yeah, that would be the first time we can truly go into a free agency and say, there is anyone we want we can acquire. Money is no object. And they might not sign anybody. Like, that's the thing. Like, I, you know, if they don't sign or if they don't go on a crazy spending spree, I'm not like, uh, there's, I know there's some Met fans out there that think, right, like you said, they're going to assemble an all star team and basically buy up every single good player possible. That's not going to happen. It's not realistic and it's not sustainable. Again, you build it through analytics, you build it through getting your own guys, getting them homegrown, and getting these, these studs. And I think that's where they're going to be headed now. They could get one or two big names for sure. But to your point, right, like to actually go into free agency, look at a Francisco Lindor, or I guess he has one year left, but trade-wise, if you want to trade for Lindor and then give him a massive extension, if you want to sign Real Muto, if you want to sign Trevor Bauer, like money is no object. Money won't be the reason why these guys don't sign out the Mets, which is something, again, we can't really say for the duration of the Will Pond's ownership tenure. That's been the reason why a lot of guys haven't signed with the Mets is because they don't want to shell out the big bucks. They don't want to uh, dive deep into their funds. So it's nice to see that for once going into an offseason, money is no object. I I can't wait because I feel like out of the three, the most realistic to me is Bauer. I just think Bauer to me fits as a like being a Met. I could just honestly picture him as a Met and just imagine that combo of him and DeGrom and Whenever Thor gets back healthy, it puts less pressure on um, Thor to get back to being the number two guy, and he could just be the number three guy for all that for all that matters. Like I, I just think picturing Bauer as a Met is just great, and knowing the kind of personality that he is, I just feel like God, he'd be a great Met. He'd be excellent for the city. He'd be great in New York, right? I mean, his his tweets have been uh, have been fun. He uh, he is not shy in chirping, so I think that you're right. That would be a lot of fun. Um, and the New York market would be a big fan of his for sure. Oh my God. Could you imagine like what we'd be talking about? It's like, Oh, well, it's like, we got to cover what Bauer said on Twitter or something like that, or some stuff that he said about Manfred. Cause he's been like the most open, like criticizer of 
Manfred's tenure for like the past few seasons now. I, actually, like past year at the very least. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So now if he has a bigger platform, no offense to Cleveland, no offense to Cincinnati, um, but you give it, you know, a bigger platform and a bigger media market, just imagine, you know, his celebrity, like it's going to grow. And like you said, his words will be heard by everybody. Not that they weren't before, but now they'll be magnified. Yeah, I feel like the Met. I feel like Mets fans would very much like his personality. It's the kind of thing that they would just like galvanize around, right? Oh, totally. Yeah, I, I, I agree. He's one of those guys. Like the Mets sort of gravitated around Marcus Stroman when they when he traded when they traded for him uh, in 2019, and they went on that kind of little mini hot streak for like almost three weeks. I think Trevor Bauer, right? You get him for a full year, and obviously he's a lot better than Marcus Stroman. When you have that kind of passion and then back it up with some great pitching performances oh yeah he'll be he'll be loved for a while because you guys are so blessed with having pete alonzo who's probably the biggest the kindest person in the kindest baseball player in all of the league he's just like the biggest like the just the nicest guy like there's nothing you could say about like pete alonzo that's like bad really you can't like personality wise i mean yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice guy. Does great charity work. Does great stuff for the community. Um, as a leader, being a second year in the league, even last year as a rookie, people were blown away. And that was one of the biggest attributes. Forget, you know, the 50 plus home runs. It was his ability just to be a leader, come in and just be, you know, be the voice of the team, despite being so young and, you know, barely being there again, being as a rookie. It's it was impressive his maturity. Yeah, I, I can't. It's like now it's between him and Judge. Like now, it's like he's basically contesting with Judge, and I and I just I love that. It it kind of makes me feel like like this, you know, baseball is really just like getting back going to the city again. As like now, both teams like if this sale goes through, that means that it, it's going to be a lot more intense now, and I and I can't wait for and I can't wait for that. So, same. I but with, with the way Penn State season started. With the way 2020 has gone, I am very ready for baseball opening day 2021. I can't wait for that, whenever that may be. All right, Ryan, uh, let the people know how they can reach out to you on social media and what you have been up to. Yeah, so like you said in the open, just hosting my own show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, uh, Monday, Thursday, um, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. So that show, Twitter handle is Ryan Hickey Show. Ryan Hickey Show. Um, and then the famous, now we'll say, going back to the intro as well, Twitter handle at Ryan underscore Hickey and the number three um, trace for those who speak Spanish. Um, so that's really, that's where I kind of live. Twitter, Twitter is the main, the main uh, thought machine. We'll say where I put a lot of stuff out. So yeah, that's where you can find me. That's, that's where, that's where I live essentially is, uh, is in the Twitter sphere. All right, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on and that's going to do it. Everybody do not forget to follow this podcast on Spotify as well as anchor.fm. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening, and I will see you guys next time.